Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Tony Hampton is a family physician practicing in Chicago for over 25 years. He is an internal medicine specialist and a board-certified obesity specialist, with his passion directed towards helping people manage and prevent type 2 diabetes. He has previously served as the medical director of the Advocate Operating System, where he collaborated with clinicians on programs to help address the health among at-risk patient populations. He is the author of the book, Fix Your Diet, Fix Your Diabetes, which helps people understand the metabolic components of the disease. He is active on YouTube and Twitter, where he creates great educational content. His podcast was launched in 2020 called Protecting Your Nest, and you can find amazing resources on his website at www.drtonyhampton.com. Whew, that was a mouthful. Dr. Tony Hampton, welcome to the show. We're so honored to have you. Well, I'm happy to be on the show and always happy to share the journey and obviously anything we can do to help our patients heal and just the community in general. That's that's my mission. So happy to be here. That's great. That is something you are absolutely accomplishing. Your uh, introduction was a mouthful. And I told you uh, before we started recording, it was very, very difficult to cut it down um, to just those things because there is a massive list of programs you participated in, um, things you've done in the community, and and just all the good that you bring into the world. It's, it's really amazing, kind of hard to filter down, actually. <laughs> um, before we get started, like we said in the introduction, you you are in Chicago. Does that make you a Chicago Bulls fan? I uh, hate to admit it, but absolutely 100%. Man, okay. We'll do the podcast. We'll record this interview. That's fine, but I don't know if we can ever be friends. I'm sorry. <laughs> Understood. And I do remember uh, some of those legendary shots that Michael Jordan oh, threw I, out there. So <laughs> I'll pray for you guys. But you have a, let's say this, you have a phenomenal team now. Yeah, that's, sure. that's true. They're playing amazing and they're super, super fun to watch, which is great. Um, so I, I would... <laughs> During the introduction of all 10 of the uh, Last Dance documentary episodes, I would stand up out of my couch and yell at the TV at Michael Jordan's gorgeous last shot. That's just a dagger. It's so acute still. I have such a hard time. <laughs> I know. Man, I, I had a client this morning um, that was running a little late, and the area of town that he was in was actually a place that I had grown up. And so I parked my car and got out for a quick walk and got a walk through my old neighborhood and by my old house. And I forgot how many of us had um, basketball hoops. It's like every other house wow. had, a, had a hoop. And I just looked at the driveway and the hours and hours of I'm John Stockton, you're Carl Malone, my friends Jeff Hornacek, like everybody just pretending to 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 be you know the jazz members, and then again just just that that was playoff series was so hard to watch even today. Yeah. <laughs> to have guys that great, you know, to play the game of basketball and not get a you know a chip as they would call it is 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 sinful. It's a crime, but <laughs> but they definitely were one of the greatest. Uh, teams we've seen and hopefully the new team that you guys have put together will accomplish you know a lot as well yeah we certainly hope so (laughs) so that was me growing up in utah you have a really interesting story growing up in chicago can you tell us uh, what that was like absolutely um you know i i love my city of chicago um but you know chicago is interesting it's kind of uh a tale of you know two cities in some ways and you have, you know, kind of, we don't really have an east side. That's kind of like downtown, but then you have the water, Lake Michigan. 
But we do have a north side, which tends to be uh, uh, residents who do a little bit better than average. The south side is a little bit of a mixture, and that's kind of where I work. And the west side is, you know, historically known as the side of town that had less resources. But the reality is there's a mixture all over. But but in general, that's how you want to think about it. So I did grow up with a, a single mom uh, who had to raise two boys uh, by herself. And she was uh, a factory worker over at Nestle's. And in fact, I she was... Uh, it was so much candy available that I actually would sell candy, <laughs> uh, you know, just as a little thing I did in, in college. So it was kind of cool to have that. So, so I tell you, it, it's been, it's been interesting because you see the sacrifices of your mom and you understand what it takes to raise two boys in the city. But, you know, what really kind of um, helped me to see the world through a different lens is being a tennis player. So I was fortunate. We moved from one part of the West side to the side that's closer to the nearest suburb, which is Oak Park, which is a very nice suburb. And, and I just happened to walk outside my house and see a tennis court, right? And so the tennis court actually provided a way for me to see the world through the other lens, which is I had to go into Oak Park periodically and play tennis with kids who had more than I had. So I think that kind of inspired me to want more and but also had to struggle. So while my, you know, I remember back in the day, you had the number one tennis player competing with McEnroe, which was uh, Bork. And I would, you know, my mom, I don't, I just can't believe she would actually buy these Bork uh, tennis shoes. I know she couldn't barely afford them. But then in order to like make them last, I would have to put shoe glue in the tennis shoes to kind of make them stretch. But I was just trying to kind of blend in with the kids in Oak Park. But mm-hmm. because I played with those kids in Oak Park, I became a pretty good tennis player. I played for my high school and 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 even for my uh, college briefly. And uh, so it was that was my sport. But I think just growing up in a, I would argue, a tougher neighborhood and then having a mom that just had your back and then having exposure to things that would inspire you kind of molded me into the guy I became. Mm, wow. That's such a cool story. I, I read through that story of the tennis court. Um Super interesting. And you also have a great story about um, kind of the time that you decided you wanted to be a doctor and it involved cutting your hand, I believe. Yeah, crazy. Um, if I if I if I were doing a video version of a podcast, I'd show you my hand. The scar is still there. Wow. And like any good mom, um, when we're, you know, kind of walking to the laundromat, we didn't have those things in the home. We lived in an apartment. We would walk to the laundromat and my mom would say, hey, you know, don't run. But of course, being two little boys, <laughs> we don't hear anything she's saying. And so we ended up, I ended up running and and it, it was a lot of glass on the sidewalks in retrospect, a lot of glass and rocks and stuff. So I, I fell, I cut the middle part of my hand. And of course, it was a big enough gash that she had to rush us to Cook County Hospital. So I get to the hospital and um, I'm, you know, my mom's kind of like nervous about the whole experience. I'm pretty calm, but more amazed because after they gave me the numbing medicine, I don't recall actually getting the numbing medicine. I just remember after I got it, I just didn't feel anything. And I was like, wow, this is really cool that I can have this on my hand. And I'm sitting there talking to the doctor who was doing the work. My mom's like looking the other way. And the whole time, um, I'm thinking this would be kind of cool to do. So what my mom tells me, because I was pretty small back then, she said that from that moment, I had 
talked about becoming a doctor because I wanted to be able to help people without them feeling pain, you know? So I, I thought that was, so my mom actually had to remind me of that story, but I certainly remember the fall and the experience. And that's what kind of put that little doctor spark in my brain. Mm, that's a great story. I love that. So you go off to college and then to medical school. Tell us some of the challenges you faced uh, in your medical school. Yeah. And you would think that when I think about challenges, uh, it's easy to go back and say, well, were the challenges, you know, when you were younger and then to be honest with you, they weren't because my mom had my back and she was a, she did a great job as a single mom raising uh, two boys. But in medical school, I did have a challenge in that. I don't know if I knew, even though I obviously was good enough to get into medical school in terms of a student, I don't think I really understood the sacrifice. So I I just maybe didn't push that envelope as hard as I should. So at the end of my uh, second year, I didn't have satisfactory grades in two subjects, uh, one being biochemistry and one being microbiology. And by the way, when I took, I'm doing my uh, master's in nutrition right now in functional medicine, and I did get an A in biochemistry. So shout out to the biochemistry people out there. <laughs> I was able to uh, recover nicely, but back then I struggled. And so, and when I was struggling, I had to meet with my dean and, and she said something that'll always stick with me. She said, you know, maybe you're just not medical school material. And, and when she said that, it was like somebody stabbing you in the back, right? The problem is once you become uh, a, do- a person on that journey to become a doctor, everybody on, on the planet, especially your family, already calls you doctor. So not becoming a doctor wasn't an option. So in that moment, I, I told her, I hear what you're saying, but you got you to gotta give me a path to you know, resolving this issue. So I ended up um, being told, well, for biochemistry, you have to take this test and you have to pass it, you know? And it was very challenging because we had a uh, biochemistry PhD student who kept the uh, biochemistry curve very high, um, unfortunately. So it was a struggle for all of us. But having said that, um, I somehow magically uh, passed that test, which really was stressful for me. And then right after that, I, I knew I would be okay at that point, but the I had to um, then go to summer school in Vermont, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders territory and take my microbiology. That was a little easier because a class is not as intimidating as one test. So that one test for me was one of the biggest challenges. If I had not passed that test, I probably wouldn't be a doctor today. So that was a, you know, I haven't had a ton of challenges in my life, but that was one that really was a, a game changer if I had not overcome it. So that's what comes to mind when I think about a personal challenge. Mm. I, I, to me, it sounds like something that like motivated you even more to be a doctor, almost like, you oh know, my God. we've been talking about the yeah. goals, like Michael Jordan. If you said anything negative about Michael Jordan, he would just take that and, and it would just motivate him to, to destroy you even more. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest. Um, and we, we are inspired by all of these athletes. We're inspired by, you know, people who have accomplished a lot. And, and yes, um, when you hear their stories and, and when you have your own personal challenge, it makes you better, you know? And, and what I've found is that I, I, I get better more often than not when I'm faced with a challenge. So I think it's better in some respects to have challenges in your life, rather it's, you know, how we deal with, you know, my area of specialty, which is diet and nutrition, or if we're just talking about trying to achieve your professional goals or trying to make sure your marriage is okay. So I think 
a challenge sometimes makes it stronger. Ultimately, it's just who wants to go through a challenge. But that pain that you feel and that and that and that 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 moment of truth is what defines us. And it really what is what sometimes leads to greatness. So I'm I'm actually happy with all the challenges I faced. I love that. We had um, an ER doctor on, a really good friend of mine. He's in Columbus, Ohio, and he talked about some of the challenges that he's faced. Um, he was diagnosed at a pretty young age with leukemia, and those challenges. Every time he would he would go through something new and something hard, he he compared it to you know the Japanese sword makers that you pass through the fire and it makes the steel stronger, and you just keep going mm-hmm. through and keep going through. So I I love that. That's such a great point that you brought up, and I'm glad you um, I'm glad you learned that that lesson, that life lesson. Um, Absolutely. Did you always know that you were going to return to Chicago to practice? Yeah. Um, in some ways, yes. I, I felt like, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the stat, and I've shared this before. You know, they're only educating about 500 uh, African-American uh, males in medicine um, every year in a country of 300 and something million, right? So when you think about that stat, and that's just going to medical school. I'm not even sure what the status in terms of graduating from training. So I knew that I was a rare commodity. So there, so part of me wanted to um, serve the community I came from. So when I first graduated and was able to practice, I actually literally uh, worked on the west side of the city where I grew up, and uh, and I did it happily. So I knew. So part of it was I wanted to, you know, kind of be that. Uh, example for young people to see and also to serve the people who I felt had a greater need for the type of uh, training that I had uh, gotten. So, and then when I, when I finished my residency and I went into my real practice, I did work at a federally funded clinic, similarly thinking, okay, this is a clinic that needs me. And then ultimately at my current uh, clinic with, um, Beverly, it's called the Beverly Clinic because it's uh, in that, you know, in Chicago, you have a name for every, you know, area and it's called Beverly. And, um, but even though it's a fancy name, <laughs> it's actually uh, a lot of our patients are, uh, you know, seniors, they're on Medicare and, and I would argue patients who have limited resources, fixed income. So, so I, so I actually had opportunities to work elsewhere, but I decided to serve that population. Um, and it's been working really well for me because I feel like I'm at home. And, uh, and I think the other things I do allow me to get a bigger audience, but I, Chicago's my home for sure. Now, you know, would I move to a warmer place one day? Absolutely. But I, I predict what will happen is I'll probably spend my majority of my life here. And then when I, when I retire, I'll probably look for sunnier pastures, but <laughs> I love Chicago and you really appreciate the weather change. Cause as we're entering uh, spring. I mean, it's like, I mean, I, I just literally sat on my deck um, just this weekend. And I mean, it was just what, 60 degrees, but it felt like, you know, oh, 80. So you know. Nice. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it was perfect. <laughs> so different in the spring than it is in the fall. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, <laughs> you mentioned that stat 500 um, African-American doctors in a year. I, I, I did hear that stat. I heard that stat from you and it was on the Diet Doctor podcast where you work with oh, um, cool. 
Dr. Brett Scher, which we've interviewed, um, and we're going to host him on the show here soon. And oh, yeah. the, the way you worded it was so insightful, and it really helped me understand where you said, look, like you are such a well-respected doctor, you know, Dr. Brett Scher, and you can say things that people will trust. It's just that if I say them to my community, they're going to listen maybe a little bit more. My voice is going to be a little bit louder. Yeah, That's it's, insightful. it's true. Yeah, well, I think, it, and and you really want to be careful because, again, we have phenomenal clinicians who are not African-American who are doing a phenomenal job uh, reaching the communities of color. In fact, when I worked for my uh, clinic in the underserved community that was uh, on the West side before I went to Advocate Aurora, um, literally every other doctor except one doctor who was also, I was kind of a family doctor, OB doctor in a way. Um, all of those doctors were not African-American. Not only did they do a phenomenal job serving that community, but the, the surprise is that they all lived in that community. And I'm not talking about a community that is like a middle class. I'm talking about a community that was a tough neighborhood. And they, they were kind of a spiritually based group, but they all lived in a community and they were not African-American. So you don't have to be African-American, but what happens particularly when you're trying to convince people to do certain things like take certain medicines or whatever, sometimes it takes a little um, convincing. And sometimes having somebody who is from that community that you're from, it's just kind of an automatic trust that they have where in other, with other cultures, they may have to, those cultures have to earn that trust. So I just kind of get a pass just because I'm looking like them. That doesn't mean I'm a great doctor, but it certainly gives them an opportunity to feel more comfortable. And at the end of the day, we want the world to be a certain way. We want people to not think that way, but it's going to take some time and a lot of healing. And until we get to that point, we want to have diversity so that people who are not quite ready for a doctor that doesn't look like them, they'll have that choice. And that's really what I want to see. I want to see young, more young people with the opportunity to do this type of work, which is really a joy to be able to help people and get paid to help people. I mean, it's kind of a no brainer, but a lot of people just don't believe they can do it, but they will believe it more if they see somebody that looks like them. Mm, that's a great point. And we've already mentioned your podcast, which I want to talk to you about a little bit later on, but one of my favorite episodes was where you guys were talking about the vaccine and how critical is that in 2020 or 2021, especially if you know any of the history behind minorities and vaccines, <laughs> there is a, a massive lack of trust there. And for very, very good reason. And I think it's just so helpful to get that kind of education in a really conversational way. And you communicate that really, really well. So I, I, I know that must make a difference in your community. It's so important. Yeah, it's important. Um, I think most of us are aware that communities of color have been uh, impacted by COVID at a greater scale. Uh, some people may be aware that um, African-Americans in particular have, uh, they're more likely to have what we call oxidative, uh, you know, uh, stress. And they, they, it's almost like their immune system over responds uh, and they, they call it a cytokine storm. So when your immune system is supposed to, you know, just kind of get you wrapped up for an infection, sometimes with the communities of color, they tend to overreact, which means that the inflammation that is overreacting to cause more damage to your lung tissue is more likely to occur. So there's other factors, and most of them are dealing with social determinants of health, you know, you know, rather it's economic health issues, rather it's, you know, so all these different reasons why we struggle, lack of access. 
All of those things are part of why communities of color struggle. So my thing is, okay, you have, um, you know, 2.6, 2.7 million people who have been exposed to COVID um, or, and died. Uh, you have probably 100 million people in the world who have um, actually been exposed in general terms. And maybe one out of three, one out of four are still having chronic symptoms. And then you have a vaccine where essentially nobody's died and nobody's been hospitalized. Nobody's been on a ventilator. And so what I try to do is I, I honor the systemic racism when I talk to patients and say, I get it. I understand there's lack of trust and the history is what it is. However, uh, we, we have to then say, well, is those, are those old beliefs going to harm me? Because they're not unreal in that they really occur. But, you know, I try to frame things from a perspective. What's the probability that uh, what's happening with the vaccination is like a, you know, it's like a syphilis experiment. You know, what's the chances that that's what's happening? You know, when you have all these other people lining up to get the vaccine who are not African-American, when you imagine what logistical challenge it would be to only give the bad vaccine to the African-American folk versus the uh, patients who are not. So I just kind of ex explain. So I give them kind of like talking points and then it helps them to uh, say, well, you know, what about you, doc? And I can say, well, I got it. And, and I think after you've kind of had a brief conversation and by providing resources like a podcast episode dedicated to that topic, the, a lot of times you can reach people. And what I found is that having these conversations has really led to a lot of people who I thought wouldn't do it, doing it. Now, the funny thing is that some of them say, I'll get the COVID, but I'm not getting the flu shot. <laughs> so it's kind of a catch 22. They still have beliefs that you, but, but anyway, that's a huge victory if I'm able to get them to see the world through a different lens. That's right. Well, and it's, it's, it's such a great message and you are, you're building trust. And so maybe no flu shot this year, but maybe next year, they'll be a little bit more open to it. Like it, it is establishing trust. I think, I think you do such a wonderful job of that. You have found kind of the low carbohydrate world, but I want to know what was it like to practice medicine before you kind of stumbled upon low carb? Yeah, it, it was, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So for me, it was um, normal to manage disease with the expectation that you're just trying to slow the progression. So I just kind of assumed that when you have these chronic health conditions, you're pretty much are gonna have to stay on medicines, particularly like blood pressure, for example. It was more common to just help people, uh, you know, manage. Now, even back then, I was a you know a vegetarian, and and with that, I, I absolutely believe that uh, wellness through nutrition was important. I think I failed in that regard because I couldn't get a lot of folk to actually do that diet. It was a little harder for people. Uh, particularly from a cultural perspective, it was just hard to imagine not eating meat when the rest of the family's doing that. So that, you know, maybe if I had more success with that, I would have seen more success with my patients, but convincing them to go in that direction was very difficult. But, but yeah, so when you go backwards and look at what was going on in the past, I never recall anybody's renal function getting better ever in my entire career. I've been practicing since my, you know, if you go back to my training, we're looking at 26 years as I started my residency and I never saw anybody's creatinine or their microbiome get better ever in my whole career until wow. I started 
preaching a low carb diet. Um, I, I just didn't see people getting off insulin was a never like that never happened. And now it happens all the time. And I just didn't think it was possible to get off of insulin. Mm. So, so going backwards and looking and, and you feel bad because you think about all those people that you could have helped, but I just hadn't taken the time to think outside the box because I was just following the standard guidelines that tell you how to do things. In fact, I just had a patient who I saw a week ago who, um, you know, had a little moment of, uh, you know, not kind of doing well with the diet. They went in with a higher blood sugar than expected. And of course they started this patient on insulin. The irony is that when they talked to the patient about this, they told the patient, you have to, you know, consume you know, 75 to 100 carbs, which is not a horrible number because it's still considered a low carb when it's under 120 or so. But but they insisted that you have to have, you know, maybe, you know, you know, maybe 40 to 50 carbs with your meals. And I and and then I and then I and then the patient said, I'm having all these low sugars because they kind of went home and started eating the way I told them. <laughs> and and I think that th- there's a there's a disconnect between clinicians who haven't been able to see the world from a reverse angle, which is, well, if we eat right, we can take less medicine as opposed to if we we have to eat more because we're taking medicine. It's just a, it's such a simple concept, but I honestly don't think people think that way. And I had to learn how to think differently now. So now I think, okay, if you're going to do this diet, we're going to have to reduce uh, the, the amount of medicine immediately because your blood sugars are going to plummet. And that's because this is a dietary disease. So, so I had to change how I look at all of these factors completely. And, uh, and I just, I'm just so thankful that I was able to, you know, learn these things. And I just never thought I'd learn it from social media and Twitter and, you know, places like that. I should learn it in school. And, and one of my hopes is that moving forward, we can, we can incorporate this way of thinking into the education that the clinicians get so that they don't have to go out and learn this, you know, by reading, you know, the big fat surprise by Nina Teichels or, you know, good calories, bad calories by Gary Tobbs. They shouldn't have to do that. And their patients shouldn't have to do that. They should be able to get this information from the clinical teams they trust their care to. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I think at this point, it's going to have to be, you know, more people that are actually like on the ground and coming to their doctors with their hands in the air saying like, look, I, I just tried this and I feel as good as I've ever felt and just lost 40 pounds of fat. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, I, I think the more and more people hear that message and try it for themselves, I think that will kind of force the hand at some point of, of the medical community as a whole. And yeah, I, I will definitely be looking forward to that in the future as well. Once one you, quick point, one please, quick point though, is the society of metabolic health practitioners, right? So led by Doug, um, um, that society is really important because it'll actually be a gathering place for people like myself and others who don't know uh, about metabolic health. So the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners is probably gonna then be able to impact the American Diabetes Association and the American Heart Association because there is a legitimate society, not-for-profit, whose purpose is to make sure that everybody understands that achieving metabolic health through um, diet is possible. So I think that that's the, the beginning of something really great. And they, they just started this society a few months ago. 
So I think that'll be something that we'll, we should we should be excited about. Mm, that's great. That's really good news. More the more people talking out there, the better. That's great. So yep. some some doctors talk about how difficult it is to transition from you know standard of care what they were doing before to kind of change their practice or change what they're telling people. Was it terribly difficult for you, or were you able to make that transition pretty easily? Um, not when you're in a health system that allows you to have your individual practice in some ways. There's some things that we have to do uh, or that we're encouraged to do. Like there's, you know, standards in terms of who should be on the statin, right? So there are times when I don't want to put a person on the statin, but so those are things that we have to face. But but in general, you have to be in a health system that will support that or obviously be on your own. And then and then the other pieces, you know, how do you uh, incorporate nutrition uh, counseling into your medical practice. I have the luxury of a, a resource called Scribble, which is a note-taking service by a company called IKS. So when I walk into the room, I just talk and the notes are written for me. So that gives me some of that time back so I can teach and I'm able to uh, make that transition. I also always give out uh, some handouts uh, when I see people to help them know what to do when they leave. And then, of course, I can use my my website and other resources like Diet Doctor, for example, as uh, places I can point people to so that they'll kind of know what to do because you're hitting them with so much information. On my website, I made uh, how and why adopt a low-carb diet. So those two videos with slides really just allow my patients who are just meeting me to have a tool to learn all they need to learn. So what I, so all of those things, including the book, it, you know, it's like a workaround. You're like, well, how do I teach this information? And I felt like, I felt like it was malpractice if I didn't share that information. So I had to teach nutrition. I can't just give them, you know, a pill. And I had to come up with these workarounds to help them uh, learn these, uh, these important things. And I'm actually working, YouTube is my focus for this year. And what I want to do is not just make, you know, cute videos that, you know, reflect the podcast that I'm doing. I want to also make, okay, you know, how do you, how do you treat GERD? Like I've done that video, for example, and just give people some alternatives to medication and explain to them why these alternatives may be a good idea. So, so you have to really, it does take effort. And that's why I think in a, in a large health system, what you want to do is create a, a, a web of people to support clinicians who are not doing all the things I'm doing, but can, you know, maybe refer to a great weight loss program, which we're actually going to be starting very soon. Maybe refer to people who can kind of take, you know, like a, na a nurse navigator who can connect all the pieces for a patient it rather is getting a coach or a, a, a pharmacy team member that's going to help them, you know, wean off medicine safely or a nutrition professional. So, so it really takes a team effort. And, but the key is that the information that we're using to justify what we do is going to have to be in a landed somewhere. And that's why, you know, Adele Heights who helped write the uh, guidelines for how do you approach a patient uh, with, you know, that you're trying to get off medicine with nutrition. So the diet doctor has a free CME that expresses that. The uh, the society uh, also has uh, ways for us to, you know, you can actually read the guidelines and it just gives you guidance. That way you can always, you can always look back and say, hey, we can, I know, I know what my colleagues are doing and I'm doing similar to what they're doing. And I think that's the type of, um, 
you have to have things in place because we're all trained to follow the guidelines and the standard of care. So whenever you deviate from the standard of care in theory, then you need to be able to justify that. So if you have things in place to help you justify it, then the average clinician feels more comfortable doing it that way. That's so well explained. And I love how you are seeking to meet people where they are at a platform that they can understand. We cannot say enough about Diet Doctor. It's a site that we've paid for for many years now. It is such an amazing resource. There's there's videos, there's movies, there's all kinds of articles. The meal plans are amazing. The, the meals are amazing, including a recipe for banana pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Those look really was- good. I know. And it's like, you know, it's crazy. Um, you know, for me, um, you, you really don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, when I thought about trying to help people and, and how do you get this information to them? I, you know, I thought about, I need to create all these resources for myself. And then I realized, you know what, you know, you have some phenomenal resources already out there. And so why not just partner, you know, with those folks that are doing it? So after I know me and Brett, when we had our uh, uh, podcast interview, uh, when I was on their podcast, it was it was kind of we ended up talking about, you know, is there a way to continue to have a relationship? And that's how it kind of started for me. And and then after, you know, brainstorming, um, I, I know that I want to teach a lot. So I say, well, you know, let's, let's just write a column, you know, monthly, let's, let's do that. Let's let, you know, let me join the uh, low carb expert panel. So those types of things are allowing me to uh, support what they do. And then they support what I do uh, primarily by giving me some more exposure, but that exposure is important because, um, you know, when I joined uh, Twitter and I was looking for my colleagues who uh, had similar uh, perspectives, didn't see a lot of people of color, you know? And so, um, so what I want to do, part of me being part of their platform, I think is that, you know, show somebody of color who also uh, believes in this way of uh, eating. So I really feel it's a gift to be in that position. And and I really hope to uh, use that to kind of reach more people, because again, that population you know, um, that's underserved, the minority, however you want to frame it, there's a great need for this information. And unfortunately, until the uh, Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners reaches more people, there's going to be a lot of clinicians out there who really just have not understood the value of um, nutrition. Now, even for those who understand, sometimes they just uh, have not seen success enough to believe that people will do it or that it'll work. And I think once they start to see the successes, you can't turn around once you start to see it. So I'm really excited to have that partnership. That's great. That's it's so smart of you. <laughs> and if for no other reason, go to dietdoctor.com and make sure you go to t- uh, Dr. Hampton's uh, banana pancakes. It looks so good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can't wait to try that. We'll my turn on my low carb corner and I hope to add more uh, examples. That. <laughs> That's great. We'll turn on <laughs> Jack funny. Johnson when we make him too. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> One of the things you also do to make, um, make this easy to understand is you've, you've, used uh, two separate kind of acronyms that I see in your work a little bit. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, it kind of was um, interesting when I came up with this nest and rope acronym. I I had already, before I even started my 
master's in nutrition and functional medicine with University of Western States, I had already come up with this nest. And, you know, of course, that's for nutrition and also include intermittent fasting in the end. The E is for exercise. The S's are for less stress, more sleep. T is for how we think. And the other T is for avoiding trauma. So I, I pretty much had all of those before I started my training. Uh, but then that trauma part was new. And that, and that trauma part came from learning about the functional medicine tree and the root causes of disease. And what I like about functional medicine is that they really focus on asking the question, why, why, why? You know, why do you, why are you sick with MS? And is it, and then you learn, well, maybe it's because you have mitochondrial um, dysfunction. And then, so now I understand why I had to take biochemistry going back to that, because you need to understand mitochondria so you can help your patients. And well, what foods help your mitochondria to be healthy? And so those are the things I'm loving about being a student again. Uh, but the rope, you have to climb the rope to get to the nest because we we don't have wings. And so the R, and this is often a functional medicine. So anybody listening, just, just put in functional medicine uh, uh, tree and you'll see the root and the roots will have these different uh, components. So you want your relationships to be healthy. That's the R. Uh, if they're not healthy, you're probably going to have a high blood pressure or a high blood sugar. The O is for avoiding organisms. That's an easy conversation during a pandemic. The P is for avoiding pollutants. And on the south side of Chicago, there are a lot of factories. The E is for protecting your emotions. And the other E, which I absolutely got from the functional medicine tree, is your life experiences. And, and your life experiences define who you are. It, it tells you whether or not you're going to eat this or that. It defines your culture. So, But are those things still serving you? And I tell a lot of my patients in the African-American community, you know, if you eat your greens with cornbread, is the cornbread still serving you if you're diabetic? If, if the cornbread is equivalent to seven teaspoons of sugar, is that serving you? And so our life experiences have to sometimes get out of the way if they're bad to make way for the new version of ourselves. So, so I really, the nest and the rope, what I love about it is it allows me to have a broad array of topics to discuss just like uh, I'll be recording an episode about sleep for this week's episode. But it also uh, makes it something, it's something easy to remember. And it's, it's easy for people to not just settle for just focusing on diet. Yeah, you, know, you can't just focus on diet. If you're not getting enough sleep, you're still going to probably have an elevated blood pressure. Studies show that if your sleep is only four or five hours, the next day for 12 hours, your pressure will be high for, for 12 hours. So, so if people don't know that, then they won't prioritize sleep. So, so I think the nest and the rope acronym is just a way for us to think broadly about how we can uh, live well and maintain our health. I love that. That's really easy to remember and understand and understanding that there's actions you need to take to protect your nest, I think is really helpful. You are the author of the book, Fix Your Diet, Fix Your Diabetes. Uh, can you tell us um, why you decided to write the book and why it had to be you to write it? Yeah, you know, it, again, it was a little bit of a workaround and, and it had a lot to do with the fact that um, I didn't have a, a easy way to communicate with my patients uh, what they need to know about these concepts. So, you know, you don't have time in a clinic to talk about, you know, what a glycemic index is, for example. Uh, you don't have time to you know, give them all the things, the tools they need. So I felt like if I give them 
a tool like a book, that'll really help them understand uh, the steps they need to take. And then what I what I found is that if I just speak my, you know, speak in my own language, speak. And what I mean by that, if I speak just regular conversation, some of the patients have said to me what they liked about the book is that it, it, it was like they were just talking to me, right? But when I wrote the book, I started off with concepts like, I think the first chapter talks about fix your motivation, you know? So, you know, why, why do you want to make this life change in the first place? So I spent a whole chapter talking about motivation. And then I, I have a second chapter that talks about uh, going back to that, those life experiences, fix your, fix your belief systems, right? So, I, so we talk about, you got to be motivated and you got to uh, think about how you look at the world and that may have to change. Uh, you have to be open to seeing the world through a different list, especially when you have other people saying the opposite. You know, you got documentaries like What the Health, you know, saying that if you eat meat, something bad's going to happen. And then you get confused after you watch the, you know, Vinnie Tortorich's documentary, the fat documentary. So, you know, so I think it requires even a guy like me, I, I literally watched What the Health because I needed to hear what they had to say. And of course, I had an opinion as I was listening to it, but I, I'm always open to uh, listening to other, you know, rather you're, you know, if you're a politician, if you're in politics, you got to listen to both sides of the equation. That way you may learn something. You may be able to see the world. So that so the book was really to, you know, inspire, to help people understand what, what, what exactly do you need to know about diabetes? Why is intermittent fasting, which we learned from Jason Fung, so important in the process of reversing? Why shouldn't we fear fat? You know, and then, you know, what, what, what can I do about my snacks? What can I do about my lunch? So it's really a, a matter of, and how do I read labels? So the book is just to give patients a simple tool in their language to help them understand uh, what they need to do to be successful. And it's been, it's been a, and I never really marketed the book greatly. I just kind of put it out there and I was really just telling my patients, by the way, um, you know, this is something that would be a great resource for you. So I'm really uh, proud of that and uh, hoping to write about obesity this year. Oh, great. We'll look forward to that. That's awesome. I agree with you 100% that it's so important to consider all angles and, and listen to everybody's story, but that does not mean that that whatever 90 minutes or 120 minutes of watching what the health that, that does not mean that that time will ever come back to you. That is a slow two hours to watch that documentary. I just want to yell <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> I know it's actually when, I, when you become more versed in this space, it's easy to point out the holes, right? So, and, but a lot of it has to do with the, the research studies that they quote and a lot of those studies are epidemiological studies, but right. anybody listening right now, I mean, just so, as an exercise, just type in, just go, just say Healthline 23 studies, right? And there's like, you know, so Healthline put out, and it's more than that, by the way, but they put out a nice little article that shows you all of these studies comparing low fat to low uh, carb. And there's just not, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the low carb pretty much wins the discussion. But they are random, randomized, double-blinded studies done the right way. And you can trust them. They show causation. And I think a lot of these documentaries are referring to studies that only show association and don't show causation. So you can't really lean on those as you know, the final answer. They only provide the 
the ability to then say, okay, I see there may be an issue here. Let's do a randomized controlled study. So, so I think it's important that everybody listening check that out because I think that'll clarify a lot of the confusion. Yeah, that's very well said. I love the style of your book, and we talked about that, and you carry that same style over onto your podcast. It is a very simple to listen to, easy conversation. I feel like I'm in the room with you. Tell us what it was like. I mean, we were we were also starting our podcast in 2020. Um, what was it like to start the podcast, and what have you learned along the way? It was um, what made it easy. Uh, I think everything is hard in the beginning, but there's YouTube videos to show us how to do things, right? So, right. so when things... Yeah, you know, that's the gift, right? So so what happened was things got really slow in clinic. And I felt like there's got to be additional ways for me to reach the patients that I'm serving. So when things got slow, that's when I started watching videos and trying to figure out, well, maybe a podcast would be the answer. Another thing that actually, you know, what made me really notice is that I noticed that there's a lot of YouTube channels, but there wasn't as many podcast channels. So I said, there's got to be some kind of gap there. So, and so that's what kind of got me interested. And then I, but the goal was to reach more people. And I felt like this would be the answer to reach more people. Now there's a caveat to that. What I noticed is that even if I have a patient in the office with me, and let's just say it's a 75 year old, right? who just happened to have a smartphone and was willing to, you know, maybe listen in. And they're very excited about the idea. When they see your little, you know, thumbnail, they're very excited. But there's a catch. What I found is that sometimes I would see the patient the next visit in three months or so, and they hadn't even clicked on a podcast button. There's something about, at least in the community I serve, where it's not like the norm to do podcasts. So that's why the last couple of uh, episodes, I decided to do both a video and a audio just for that population, because I felt like they would be more likely to uh, engage. So I'm kind of doing both right now. And that's kind of like what I plan to do moving forward. But for me, it's been wonderful because it's not just an opportunity to share knowledge with people, but it's also to learn from your guests. And I've learned so much because as you know, you have to prepare for your uh, conversation. And next thing you know, you're you're doing things that you hadn't been doing. For example, when I have the sleep doctor on, um, when I talk to him, Dr. Bruce, what's gonna, you know, I'm already, I have a, a, a light that I start my day with, uh, one of those mood lights. I did not have a mood light a year ago, but I do now. So I have a bright light in my face to help increase my cortisol. I also have uh, blue light blocking glasses that I put on at the end of the day. And I started doing that recently because I was researching, doing my research. I wrote an article for Diet Doctor on sleep recently that just came out. And, and, and what happens is it's, it just allows you to grow. So the podcast has not just helped you know, those who listen to it. For me, it's actually helped me personally grow. And, and, then you, and then you establish a little bit of a relationship with people, thought leaders, and then you can then maybe collaborate with them to do even more great work. So it's been really a, a gift. That's, that's amazing. I agree 100%. We recently started doing videos also on YouTube. Um, we don't record video during the show, but our software program allows us to create a YouTube video. And I have been absolutely stunned by how many people listen to podcasts on YouTube. And it just plays like, it plays a generic sound wave. It's, it, it's not us. We're not talking. I mean, we're talking, but like there's nothing going on besides the sound waves and we get hundreds of views. It's crazy. 
I know. And I think that, again, it's just another way to reach people where they are. And I think it's our responsibility to do that. And then hopefully people will find us. But yeah, they're, 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 when you look at the audience for podcasts, which has grown tremendously, it's nothing compared to YouTube. So it, it's, there's a lot of growth in it and that'll continue to happen. But while we're growing in that space, it's nice to give people that other option. Yeah, that's great. I, I agree with you 100%. I think it's our responsibility to put the message out on many diverse platforms as much as you can to get the message out to people who need it. We are hopefully coming to the end of a pandemic and kind of a little uncertain, but for the most part, it's looking very optimistic at, at the time. Um, what are you looking forward to as far as connecting with the community in a non-virtual way? Yeah, well, you know, prior to um, this pandemic, we had a healthy living program and our healthy living program was an opportunity for me and uh, my colleague, Dr. Katina Hope and others um, to get in front of two to 300 people and talk about wellness, healthy living, and, and all those aspects of that nest and rope we spoke of earlier. So people really miss that. They miss, uh, you know, just being in front of us and, you know, being able to collaborate and share their stories. So I think that that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to. You know, we also have the uh, food pharmacy and the food pharmacy is an opportunity for us to uh, work with the Chicago Food Depository and to give out food. Now we were able to kind of continue that. Obviously we do it, you know, with masks on, but we don't really have that kind of gathering we once had because when they come to the Chicago Food Depository slash food pharmacy with us, we actually educate them, we give them. So wherever we're giving out, we try to have meal plans and things like that, that reflect the, you know, what do you do with this cauliflower? And, and so we, so those things, you know, we don't do that as much. We just kind of give the food out, but I'm looking forward to really being in front of people. There's something about being in front of people that's going to be remarkable. And, and on a personal level, I'm definitely a traveler and I, I can't, you know, I'm literally trying to decide when that's going to start. I actually was going to participate in a low carb cruise that was sponsored by uh, the team that works with Dr. Uh, Ken Barry, that would have been this month actually, but it was canceled. And you know, I want to be able to get to the point where we can actually do a cruise and 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 share the knowledge. So, so I think personally, I'm looking forward to doing those things. But more locally, where I work, we want to be able to get in front of people and share the message of healing. And and people really, really, really love those opportunities. Mm. The food pharmacy program, that's that's for the listener, pharmacy with an F, farm, um, is really amazing. It was really interesting to learn about that and um, what a great program to have to be able to, you know, get more fresh and local food into, you know, what I would call like a food desert where there's just not a lot available. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's super cool. You, you would be surprised how uh, common that is that, you know, you would think, okay, there's got to be some fresh food within a mile or two of where I live and, and you're in Chicago. I mean, how could that be? Right. But, but when you actually go out and when we started the program, we would actually go out to the grocery stores and see what they had. And we did find that a lot of the food that was available was not fresh food. We also found that the corner stores were just filled with potato chips and candy and not with anything that was uh, considered uh, fresh food. So so we did have to talk to those uh, grocery stores and, you know, kind of commit to 
making sure people would buy food, but we we absolutely made sure that we did that to establish those uh, connections. So it's been really wonderful. And again, I'm learning myself because even though I grew up in um, in a, a you know kind of an inner city environment, you know you kind of lose some of that when you when you spend most of your time working. You live in a slightly different neighborhood, and you 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 almost forget about it. But it's nice to kind of go uh, go to the as the Toyota business model would say the lean model, you know, go to the, go to the shop floor, go to the Gimba is what they would say, which means go to where the work's being done, go to where people are living. And when you go and see what's happening, it provides a different perspective, which is one of the advantages of virtual business these days. You can actually see people in their homes and every once in a while you identify uh, something that would, you know, create a concern or, you could understand maybe why they struggle. Sometimes when you see their environment, it makes a huge difference. So, so yeah, I think the, the, the food pharmacy and the other stuff we're doing to, 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 to reach people and to understand the communities are things that we have to address. You can't expect people to be healthy if they don't have access to the right food. Right. It's just not, it's just an unfair ask. And so our job is to, what can we do uh, to help in that regard? And then we push our, you know, politicians as well. In fact, one of the things I did this morning was to, again, talk about the uh, need to continue virtual business and to keep funding that. So I was privileged to be able to speak on behalf of the state to encourage them to keep doing that so that we can continue to do virtual visits. That's great. Ah, that's so needed right now. Really amazing. One of my favorite things about researching for this episode, I I followed your work for a long time and listened to your podcast for a while, but researching the episode and, and getting onto diet doctor and your website, which is absolutely excellent and very well done is seeing the pictures of you interacting with your patients. And the one thing that just radiates out of all of those pictures is the sense of care and empathy and giant smiles, like the biggest smiles on your face and on their face you must have, you must be able to see success stories all the time, but I'll I'll put you on the spot and just, can you tell us one of your favorite success stories? It could be something that happened recently. It could be something that was really major. Like what, what is a success story that comes to your mind? Yeah, it's, um, you know, in fact, this success story is probably somebody that needs to be a guest because I don't talk a lot about, um, surgery. And one of the things when you, when you become board certified in obesity medicine, you're going to learn a lot about, you know, conventional approaches, which includes medication and surgery, but you'll also learn about nutrition. So, so I do want to address the bariatric surgery question in, in a favorable way, but in a way where we, you know, make that the second option. But one of the success stories is a patient who actually probably is down about a hundred and I'm thinking 120, 140 pounds. I don't have the exact wow. number, but it's over a hundred for sure. And what happened was she did, she did have Barry. I mean, you talked about it and we, I, you know, I was a little bit of a discouraging because I felt like she hadn't really get, given the low carb or keto diet adequate attention, but she decided that's something she had to do. Right. And she did it and she did have some success. She probably dropped 50 pounds or so, you know, doing that. But the, the, the success about it is that she got a plateau. Amy Berger's, you know, 
you know, when you get a star, what do you do, right? And um, and so at that moment, she realized I really do have to change my diet. <laughs> so the uh, everything after that number was all keto. And she just like continued to, and it wasn't just her losing the weight. It was like the way she felt, right? And the thing that people really have to hear is that you can, you can, you know, do a gastric sleeve and gastric bypass and all of those types of things, but you don't want to walk around hungry. And, and what I love about keto in particular is that my patients don't get hungry, right? So, so one of the things that she experienced besides mental clarity and all these other things, she says, she just said, she says it's just so much easier to do it. And now she's kind of losing weight at the pace she had expected. And arguably, if she had done this in the beginning, she probably would have been successful. But it's difficult when you have life happening to you. And sometimes life is just too much, particularly during a pandemic. And you just feel like, man, if I can just do something real quick to get the job done. So so I would I would never say that a patient shouldn't do gastric bypass or sleeves and those types of surgeries. But I just want to make sure that they give the uh, nutritional approach approach adequate attention. So so that's a that's a success story that comes to mind. But as you have suggested, it is um it's almost a daily occurrence that someone comes in and I, you know, we're reducing medicines or taking them off medicine. Um, that's like a daily occurrence. And when you go back the uh, 12 years or so before I started this, it never happened. I mean, it probably happened once or twice in 12 years. So when it, when it happens almost daily or at least a week, you know, certainly weekly, but it happens all the time. You get to a point where it becomes a norm. When I talked to Dr. Tro, who I, you know, follow, you know, the low carb MD podcast guys, Dr. Lindquist. Yep. I mean, those guys talk about success. It's just a daily thing. And, and it's, and, and so when, so let's, let's leave the patient for a moment and think about what does that mean for the clinician when they can show up at work, literally are being celebrated as some miracle worker and you're just giving them some good advice and you, and you literally are being celebrated every day, as opposed to people hating to see you because you're about to increase the dose of their medicine. So I, I I can't begin to express to you how much happier I am because I take this approach. And it's 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 a gift for any clinician who's not taking a, a dive in that direction. And so I just think that they just have to, and, and by the way, Dr. Uh, or should I say Gary Cobb's book, A Case for Keto, is a, a book filled with stories like that, you know, filled with clinicians who have had success. And you can call it anecdotal. But at the end of the day, it's working. That's right. With with antidote, it, it's large numbers, and once you get so many, yeah. so many people in a tidal wave that are all saying the same thing, that that holds some weight. And we've said it so many times. Like it's it's worth trying. You can try this. If it doesn't work, you can always go back. But give it a good try because you might right. find a, a whole new life. <laughs> and that's and right. I, I wish more people. You know, you mentioned hunger. Like I, I'm willing to bet that most people have no idea what it feels like to just simply not feel hungry all the time. 
to go about your life and do what you want to do. And you can eat when you want to eat and you can eat things that are really tasty and delicious, but you're not, it, it doesn't own you anymore. I think that's so that's right. important. Wow. This has been such a great conversation. You do amazing work. We have to ask what is one simple thing you would like to leave with our listeners um, to take away from this conversation? Yeah, I think that's always a great question. Um, for me, it's going back to why I created the Nest and Rope acronym is to recognize that there are many ways to achieve your ideal health, right? So I think it's important that people not just focus on nutrition or just exercise. It's important that you think about all of those root causes of disease and ask yourself, where do I have gaps? So my message is simply look at all of those various aspects where you have gaps, start to incrementally work towards changing those gaps. And what you'll find is that you won't even see it coming. You'll just wake up one day and, oh my God, I'm not tired, you know, a lot anymore. Oh my God, I have more energy. And, it, and, and you'll find that those are the things you have to work on and just make a little bit of a, uh, maybe, you know, 10, 10 minutes, let's just say if there's 11 things to work on every day, let's spend 10 minutes thinking about that, that one thing that I need to, am I doing a good job with that? Am I optimizing my sleep as an example? And if you do those types of things, what'll happen is you'll, you'll gradually move towards your true North, your ideal state, and you won't even see it coming. People around you will see it coming, but it'll just become who you are. So I just think that if people take that approach and kind of problem solve their way towards good health, they will achieve that goal. That's beautiful. The journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Absolutely. That's amazing. Dr. Tony Hampton, where would you like people to go to find you and your work? Absolutely. Well, always the easy thing is the drtonyhampton.com. Of course, you spell out the entire doctor. It's a very easy uh, title to remember. Because I'm really trying to grow YouTube, I'll say go there and subscribe so you can, you know, check out the videos I hope to continue to create. And of course, the podcast, Protecting Your Nest, is always a good place to land. And, and when you're on the website for Dr. Tony Hampton, you can see the low carb. It's the LC Corner, and that's the collaboration I'm doing with Diet Doctor. I think that'll be another good place to check out those uh, monthly columns. Wow, that's fantastic. Dr. Hampton, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for everything that you do for your passion and energy and empathy and all the content you create and share within and without your community. It's it, it goes a long way and it's really effective and very well done. And we're grateful for you. And I've decided, despite the pain of starting this episode talking about the jazz, we can still be friends after this. That'll be fine. We'll just we'll have to not talk about that. We'll talk hockey. We'll talk all about Blackhawks. <laughs> totally fine That'll with that. That'll work. I like that. Well, I, I, I can live with that. And I, yeah, we'll, we'll be good. And again, I'll be envious of you guys for a couple of years. So. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Dr. Tony Hampton, such an honor. Thank you so much for appearing today on Boundless Body Radio. Thank you for inviting me and you have a great one. Absolutely. You too. This has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.